We are in Luke chapter 6, and today we're at verse 46. So surely we can finish Luke 6 today, since it ends at verse 49. Then we'll move on to verse 7. So um, if you have access to the outline, you'll see it talks about building your life. So that's where we'll start today with uh, chapter 6, verse 46 of uh, Luke's Gospel. So uh, let's bow for prayer, and then we will proceed. Father, thank you for uh, a beautiful day, and thank you for the strength and the health to arise this morning and go about our daily responsibilities. Uh, Thank you for each person um, on this screen, and pray your blessing upon them and their families. Uh, Father, continue to protect and provide during these days. And I pray that we'll be your faithful servants in all things as you present to us new opportunities that perhaps we did not have before coronavirus. And I pray that we will be certain that we stay in touch with one another and let our our families and our friends and neighbors know that we are here and that we care about them. And so I pray that you will guide us through our time together in the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for the privilege of studying your precious word, and I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit will minister to our hearts and give us insight and understanding as we proceed in our study today. Again, I thank you for each person here. Pray your blessing upon each one. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it is good to see you. I'm uh, delighted that you're here. We um, this week lost one of our church family members who was a regular attender at TUNAP, and uh, that was Randy Tolbert, and uh, she uh, sadly had uh, the coronavirus and was not able to make it, and so she's with the Lord today, but we will definitely miss her and think the world of her, and she was only here a few years, but in those few years, she uh, certainly won a place in our hearts, and we loved her very much. Building your life. Let's read verse 46 through the end of the chapter in Luke chapter 6. Here we go. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So in this passage, which I think is probably pretty familiar uh, to most of us, you may remember the Childhood song, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and as children, we loved illustrating with our arms and our hands, and uh, so maybe um, you're pretty familiar with this story that Jesus told. Jesus reminds us, anyone can say, Lord, anyone can say, Lord, Lord, but the truth is revealed in the lives that we live. Are we really followers of Christ, or are we pretenders? So he gives us a pretty vivid illustration of that. I want to 
share with you some other words of Jesus that are a reminder of the importance of obedience in our lives. So let me read, if you're making a note of these, I'm in John chapter 14, verse 15. John chapter 14, verse 15, and Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Pretty simple. If you love me, keep my commands. Now, in verse 21 of that same chapter, Jesus said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then in verse 24 of that same chapter, Jesus said, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Then two more verses from the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel, I mean uh, John's gospel. In verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And then verse 15, uh, or rather verse 14 of chapter 15 in John, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. So repeatedly, Jesus says the true evidence of being a Christ follower is the fruit that we bear, the obedience that we um, demonstrate. Now, we know we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And in our study on Sunday morning in Galatians, we are really emphasizing the way that we're saved and the way that we continue in Christ. But remember, at the same time, the scripture does make it clear, the words of Jesus very clear. If we really have followed, if we really are followers of Christ by grace through faith in Christ alone, if that is true, then it will be evident by the things that we do. It doesn't mean we're sinless. doesn't mean we... Uh, don't sometimes say things we shouldn't say, think things we shouldn't think, do things we shouldn't do. All of us do that. We're still have, we still have a sin nature, but Jesus is reminding us that when our practice, our habitual practice is one of disobedience, then something is wrong because the habitual practice of one who follows Jesus is that of obedience. So he illustrates that. And lets us know that the obedience, the, the, oh, that obedience is the mark of Christian discipleship. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but if we're saved, we'll show it. I love the illustration. Uh, you build a house. If you know the Lord, you'll build the foundation on the rock. And when the storms come and they do, then we'll stand. If we build our house on sand, um, illustratively speaking, then that means our foundation is really not in Jesus. And when the storms come, the house collapses. And so that's a vivid illustration that we can understand and that uh, Jesus followers and listeners could understand. So basically, uh, Jesus is saying there are two ways to live, the way of obedience or the way of disobedience. And so there are a group of folks who are always listening, always hanging around, wherever Jesus is, not because they love him, not because they believe in him, but because they're trying to find some reason or a way that they can put him uh, out of, uh, put him away. And that's the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And, and so uh, I don't think there's any doubt that they caught that this message was particularly 
pointed at them that anybody can say, Lord, Lord, and certainly they claim to be God followers and God believers, but they were turning away from the truth that stood right in front of them. And so Jesus was very pointed in his message to them, but also to us and everyone who was there. So with that, we finished chapter six, believe it or not. And so now we'll move to chapter seven. And what a great chapter with a number of uh, stories that excite us and also um, some uh, teaching and the miraculous that is astounding. So let's look first at the first 10 verses of chapter 7 and very simply entitled The Faith of the Centurion, Roman Centurion. So here's what Luke records, verse 1 of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. So what was he just saying? He just told the story of the of the wise and the foolish builders. So when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There is a centurion's servant. They are a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick, and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Well, this is a great story of the power and authority of Jesus. He comes back to Capernaum, which is really his home away from home. Jesus really didn't have an earthly home, but he stayed in Capernaum frequently. Um, we know that it was a home of Peter. And so uh, Jesus was a frequent visitor and uh, in Capernaum. So he goes back there and we're introduced to a Roman centurion whose name we don't know, but a centurion would uh, in, in the Roman army would have been a commander of approximately 100 men. Now the Romans were noted for toughness and a willingness to use violence to enforce the will of Rome. Something about this, sir, this centurion's different. Uh, not to say he wasn't a powerful, strong officer. I'm sure that he was. But what's, what we see different is the, the humanity of this centurion, which was often not front and center in, in life in Israel. He's different. He has a sick servant that he values highly and the servant is near death. Now, often the case would have been 
that a centurion would have cared very little for his servant. And if he's sick and can't serve, then he would have said, just put him aside and bring me a new servant, one who's got some good health so I can depend on him. But that didn't happen here. This servant had a close relationship with his master, with, with the centurion. And so the centurion also apparently has a good relationship with the Jews because the text says he loved the nation and he appeals to the elders, some of the elders to approach Jesus. And they do in spite of the animosity that some of them may have had toward Jesus because this centurion asked them to go to Jesus. They did. The centurion loves the nation and built the synagogue at Capernaum. He funded the building of the synagogue in Capernaum. That would have been no small investment, I assure you. The synagogue at Capernaum, uh, there is a synagogue at Capernaum today. If you go to the Holy Land, and certainly if you go, you will go to Capernaum. Nobody goes to Israel as a tourist without going to Capernaum because it's one of the richest sites by rich, I mean just full of archaeological discoveries and such a significant place biblically. And so one of the, probably the central key of Capernaum for many people would be to stand in the ruins of uh, the synagogue in Capernaum and to be able to look down and see the very foundation stones that would have been laid by this centurion when he built that uh, synagogue in the time, in the time of Jesus. And so it's fascinating to see, to stand there and to know the biblical significance uh, of that place and that this centurion and this text funded the building uh, of the synagogue. By the way, I, I, I never cease to be amazed at how smart those people were in their building capabilities, the massive stones and the way they put things together. And, you know, I know they didn't know a lot that we know today, but I want to tell you, they were absolutely brilliant in their, in their architecture and their building processes. So this centurion loves the nation and he's heard of Jesus and he knows that Jesus can do something. And so he sends the elders, asks the elders to go and appeal to Jesus to come and heal his servant. But then the centurion sends word as Jesus is on the way, I'm not worthy to have you enter into my house. I know that you have authority to do this long distance. I know authority. I have it. And I know that you have it. And the realm in which you operate with your authority is very different from the realm in which I operate in my authority. And so I'm appealing to you in your authority to do what only you can do. And that is to heal my servant because I care about him. And would you heal him? And I know you don't have to be in my house to do it. And I am frankly not worthy of having you inside of my house. So what's the response of Jesus? 
uh, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. The, the centurion's a Gentile. He is a Gentile. And so Jesus is saying, and this Gentile, this Roman soldier Gentile, I've not seen faith like his in all of Israel. What great faith that exceeds the faith of you who are listening who should have great faith, but you don't. So also in this text, we see the caring and compassionate heart of Jesus. And so what does he do? Exactly what the centurion asked. He healed the servant, uh, long distance, didn't have to be in the house, did it long distance, and everyone is amazed. And I wonder, I wonder, did the centurion become a Christ follower? I want to say I believe in my heart that he did. Maybe part of the reason why the story is included by Luke in the gospel. But what an amazing miracle that Jesus demonstrates his authority and his power over sickness and his ability to heal from anywhere at any time, but also the fact that Jesus points out the amazing faith of a Gentile Roman centurion who came from an absolutely pagan background. And yet, having been stationed in this place, he has grown to love the nation, the people of Israel, and has heard of Jesus and recognizes his authority and appeals to that authority. So, what an amazing story of the compassion and the caring of Jesus and the power and the authority of Jesus. Now, Let's go to the next story, and I guess uh, in our secular speaking, we could say you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus heals a centurion servant long distance, but what he is about to do is utterly amazing because he demonstrates the power over life and death itself. So let's look at verse 11. Of chapter 7 and it says soon afterward Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him as he approached the town gate a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her when the Lord saw her his heart went out to her and he said Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bear they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, we've often talked about instant replays. Okay, so bear with me. I'm going to do it again. I know I know when we get to heaven, we may not be interested in instant replays because we're going to be so enamored of the presence of our Lord and our worship of him and our serving him 
But if somewhere in the billions and billions of years we're there, there is any time allotted to uh, instant replays of what Jesus did on earth, this is in my list of those that I want to see. And the list is really pretty long, but this is what I would want to see. The astonishment, the amazement of the people in Jesus demonstrating his power over life and death itself. Now, Jesus is moved by the grief of a widow who has lost her only son. That in, in first, in the first century Middle East, probably in the first century everywhere, that would have left this widow very, very vulnerable. She didn't have a husband. She now didn't have a son. Maybe she had a daughter, but the daughter likely wouldn't have been in any position to help. And so this woman is very vulnerable and she is, she's already lost a husband and now she's weeping at the loss of, of her, her only son. And Jesus sees her weeping. He sees her grief and he sees her heart and he's moved with compassion. And so he stops this uh, procession on the way to the tomb. And I understand in Israel ancient and Israel modern, uh, the burial is taking place within 24 hours of the death. So this child has not, this, this son has not been dead very long. And, and so there's a large crowd with this widow, which says, that she was probably well known in the community and, and no doubt well loved. So there was a crowd that was part of the funeral procession, but there was also a large crowd with Jesus. The text tells us his disciples. That would have been this, the designation of disciples is really focusing on the 12 and along with them, many others who are following after Jesus. And so there are a lot of people witnessing this, a lot of people. And they see before their very eyes something that they had never, ever in their wildest imagination expected to see. And so this is an incredible miracle. Now, notice that as far as the text is concerned, this woman doesn't ask for anything. I mean, she's grieving. We don't even know if she knew who Jesus was when he approached. She may very well have not known. Why is this man stopping the funeral procession? But Jesus' heart is moved, and he initiates this entire thing. Uh, the, the lady made no appeal to him. She didn't send anybody to him. She's just going with her the body of her dead son to put him in the grave and to do what was necessary to do. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stops the funeral procession and tells her to not grieve, to not cry, to not weep. You know, what in the world? What did she think? Well, there are a couple of options there. One is that the, that, that, that the power of Jesus was so amazing that she looked at him and knew Stop grieving. Something great's about to happen. Or maybe, and I don't know, maybe as she stood there, she was looking at him and wondering, why would this man tell me to stop crying 
over the death of my only son. Whatever the case may be, before this large crowd and this grieving mother, Jesus demonstrates his power over death and raises this boy. He sits up and immediately begins to talk. Now, I've been asked a few times, how old was the boy? I'm guessing an older teenager or maybe early 20s. Um, not, not a baby, not a, not a little child, but probably older teenager or, or early twenties. And so Jesus raises him up. Um, and what an amazing thing. And, and what does the crowd do? Well, the crowd really erupts. I mean, they're amazed. They gave praise to God. The text tells us they say, uh, God has God has visited his people. God has visited his people. If, if you read this story elsewhere, God visited his people. And that's truer than they knew. They are amazed at what they've seen. And I wonder how many of them that day became Christ followers. I don't know. But what an amazing miracle as Jesus raises it. And I love the fact they say a great prophet has appeared among us. Yes, more than that. God has come to help his people. Now, did they know yet that this is God in the flesh? Probably not. They believed that Jesus was a prophet sent by God to do what he did. But in the passing of time, if they listen, it will become clear that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. And so the news spread throughout Judea. And the surrounding country. I should say, I bet it did. Okay. Remember John the Baptist? Let's revisit John. Verse 18 of chapter 7. And uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. All right, here we go. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, remember, it's the same John who baptized Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he was pretty certain in the Jordan River. But now it looks like maybe, well, let's talk about what is John thinking. We'll get there in a minute. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the one who should come, who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The wisdom is proved right by all her children. All right. Well, let's look at this text. Matthew tells us in telling this same incident that John the Baptist is in prison. And you'll recall he's there because uh, because Herod had him put there, and ultimately he'll have his head chopped off. But John is in prison, and he's hearing lots of stuff, and his disciples are keeping him informed as to the ministry of Jesus. However, as we look at the text, we note that maybe some doubts had arisen in John's mind because he's asking the question, are you really the one we've been expecting? Are you really the Messiah? And the reason for that could be twofold. Number one is discouragement for being in prison. But the second may be that Jesus isn't yet doing some things that John the Baptist thought he was going to do. Uh, for instance, um, exercising power and authority over the Romans. So we think about this because we know what Jesus said about John the Baptist. There's never been anybody born of woman greater than him. So we see coupled in his heart, at least temporarily, doubt and faith together. Now, maybe in your journey with Jesus, you would be willing to confess that doubt and faith from time to time appear in the same heart. In fact, I imagine if we're really honest with ourselves and with each other, we can look back and say, yeah, that's that's true. We're like the man, the father of the boy who had a demon and asked Jesus to heal him. And he called out to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe we've all been in that position. Lord, I believe, but man, I'm struggling. Help my unbelief. So in verse 23, that this verse is worded as these disciples of John come and ask him, are you really the one? This is worded in a way such that what it looks like happened is Jesus hears their question. Then they come with him as he does all the miracles that are listed in the text. And then Jesus turns to them and say, okay, guys, go back now and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Don't stumble, John. I am the Messiah. Believe it. It is true. Now, when these guys went back and told John the Baptist in prison, I can imagine that John was rejoicing, maybe even weeping but so thrilled at what his disciples came back 
and told him. Now, let's make some application to you and me. Uh, to us, doubts of different kind are normal from time to time. Don't be deterred. You know what Jesus said, and you know what he's done. So trust Scripture and what you have seen and what you have heard. It's really what Jesus was saying to John. Trust what you know to be true. And the same is to us. In those hard trials, in the times when you say, have you forgotten me? Do you know I'm here? Why am I going through this? I've tried to be honorable to you. What, what's going on? And those thoughts come to all of us at some point in life. But when it does, remember what you know to be true. Trust the scripture. Trust the Jesus who died on the cross for you and arose for you that your sins might be forgiven, that you might have eternal life. Trust the Lord who has blessed you over and over and over and over again. Trust the Lord who's answered prayers throughout your lifetime. Trust him and know that he has a plan and a purpose for what you're currently experiencing, and he will see you through this experience. The quote from the Old Testament in this passage is from Malachi 3.1, which is the prophecy concerning the one who would precede Jesus and announce his coming, well, that's, of course, John the Baptist. And he is the one who has come. And Jesus pays John the greatest compliment ever given to anybody. No one born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. So let's think a minute. Anybody on the screen here been born Apart from a woman? I don't think so. So that means he's talking about everybody. Because every person ever born has been born of his mother. And so Jesus is saying there's never been a greater person in the world than John the Baptist. So I don't know how you get a better compliment than that. And that's what Jesus said about John. Now, in verse 29, it tells us that the people acknowledged John and Jesus' words. Well, most of the people, the religious leaders, did not. They rejected the plan of God for their lives. And verses 31 through 34 describe those who reject the message of God, no matter who brings it. No matter who brings it, they reject it. And so we see our visit with the disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus. What a, what a great, what a great text. All right. Let me see. Let me check my watch. Okay. We're, we're rolling along. We've still, we're moving. So let's go to verse 36. And there we see Jesus anointed. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, um, it is, I think, awesome that this Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. Um, 
and that Jesus accepted. But there's somebody coming who wasn't invited. And that's the woman of whom we read in this text. The implication is a woman in that town lived a sinful life. The implication is that she lives in prostitution. So in verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, so she came in without an invitation and went over to Jesus and stood behind him weeping, and then she began to wet his feet with her tears. That's a lot of weeping. She is deeply moved and convicted in her heart. Then she wiped them, her feet, his feet, with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, had we been one of the invited guests, which the disciples likely, I mean, they were, along with Jesus, but there were others there, there were other Pharisees there, But even among the disciples, when she touched Jesus, began to weep and kiss his feet and dry his feet with her hair, it was probably so quiet that the only thing you could hear was the (gasps) of those who were watching. Because in that society of that day, They could not believe that she was touching Jesus and that he was letting her, that he was not stopping her from doing what she was doing. In fact, verse 39 says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. He can almost read his mind. Well, Jesus could read his mind. Jesus answered him, Simon, that was his name. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. See, he didn't, he didn't know Jesus just knew what he thought. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, Simon's thinking is, okay, he replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was the custom of the day. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Woo, man, there's a lot here. Now, um, when Jesus is illustrating the fact that she 
was a great sinner and well aware of her sins. And he compares her to someone who hasn't sinned much. What is the, what is the underlying message that he's giving to the Pharisee? You see, this Pharisee did not see himself as a sinner in need of a savior. He would view himself as one who really didn't sin very often. He had a high estimation of himself, whereas this woman was well aware of who she was and what she had done. And she was repentant, remorseful, an empty heart in desperation. And she places her faith in Jesus of whom she had heard and perhaps heard, had seen him teach and heard him. And so she places her faith and trust in him. She's a great sinner. And Jesus forgives her sin. Now, for those who don't see their need for a Savior, the words of Jesus will fall on deaf ears. But for those of us who know our need for a Savior, who are well aware of our sin, and well aware that we need the forgiveness of God, then we hear, listen to, receive the message of Jesus and receive his forgiveness by faith and trust in him. So Jesus is very, uh, very pointed here. There's a big difference between the Pharisee and this woman. And the Pharisee ends this um, dinner aghast at what he's seen. But the woman leaves the dinner forgiven. Much rather leave the dinner forgiven than aghast. Now, in verse 50, we find perhaps a climax of the entire exciting chapter when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. She knew her need. The Pharisee did not know or recognize or was not willing to admit his own need So the dinner ends with one being saved and the other remaining lost. What an incredible story. I hope that all of us watching have come to the place in our lives where we understand that we're sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that we need a Savior. And that we have since the Spirit of God tugging at our hearts and we have said, yes, Lord Jesus, yes, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I acknowledge you coming to my heart. I want to follow you. If not, I hope you'll do that today. Now, I'm going to check my watch again, okay? All right, we're going to do a smidgen. I don't know how you do a smidgen of the parable of the sower. But I think I can do the first three verses before we leave. The eighth chapter is divided into three parts. Verse 1 through 21, there we find three parables. Then there's a really short division, verse 22 to 25, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Then verses 26 to 56, we see four miracles. So we get three parables. Power over the storm, which is, of course, a miracle. And then four additional miracles in the three divisions of this chapter. 
Now, in the first three verses, we get a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. So let me read those and we'll finish. After this, that's the dinner. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. So here's a snapshot of what Jesus is doing. You wonder, what did Jesus do every day? Well, here's much of what he did. The 12 were with him and also, ears up, listen, also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, Jesus traveled preaching the gospel, the good news, and with him are the twelve plus these ladies who were cured of the demonic and sickness. Mary Magdalene, how we've heard of her. Mary Magdalene is not her last name. It just means she came from Magdala, Mary of Magdala. Um, and one of the most recent uh, excavations in Israel today has been the, the town of Magdala. And there you can walk on the stones of the first century synagogue, knowing as you do that the feet of Mary of Magdala touched those stones, but better than that, the feet of Jesus touched those stones. So it's a pretty amazing thing. Mary had seven demons cast out of her, and she's a very prominent follower of Christ, prominent in the sense that she was devoted. Joanna, the wife of the manager of Herod's household. Well, they're a pretty prominent family in the community and uh, well off. And Susanna, and all we know about her here is her name, but all three of these helped support Jesus' ministry, which was rare for the day. There were other traveling rabbis. Jesus wasn't the only traveling rabbi. It was just that he was not just a traveling rabbi. He was the son of God. But there were the other traveling rabbis would not have had any women as part of their ministry at all. Um, now, let's think about that for a moment in our own context. The church owes much to women, don't we? Uh, can you imagine the weakness of the church without the leadership given through the centuries by godly Christian women? Now, um, those who are Baptists who are here, uh, you know, especially in the area of missions. And let me throw out three names that will be familiar to those of you who are Baptists, and that is Lottie Moon, Mary Hill Davis, and Annie Armstrong. I find it interesting that those offerings are not named after men. They're named after three extraordinary women, exemplary of the fact that women have been leaders through the generations in the church, especially in the area of missions, and for that we're grateful. So when we come to verse 4 next time, we're going to read the parable of of the sower. And uh, you're familiar with that parable. 
uh, I've always loved that parable. I've always loved them all. Don't get me wrong, but there's some that just grab, grab your heart. And I love this parable. So we'll start there next time. And then uh, we'll move on after the parable of the sower uh, to a lamp on a stand and then get to the Sea of Galilee and the miracle there and then some other miracles. So this is an exciting chapter. Don't miss out. Hope you'll be here next Wednesday. Well, God bless you. Let me pray. If you want to hang on and talk or questions or anything like that, you don't have to hurry to go away. Uh, But it is good to see you. And I trust all is well for you and your family. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for Jesus, his power and authority and majesty, his love and mercy and compassion, and his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, and the promise that you would never leave us nor forsake us, And the promise that he is coming again. And we believe that though there is much turmoil in our nation and in our world, things are not falling apart. They're all falling into place. And so we anticipate with eagerness what you will do in the days to come. Help us to keep our eyes on you and to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. I'm delighted to see you.